The Wolf and Bull podcast was prepared, conducted, and hosted by the Wolf and Bull team in their personal capacity. This podcast is for expressive listening entertainment, and any views, ideas, or opinions may or may not extend past the boundaries of this podcast. Conversations or specific comments on behalf of the hosts and guests are for entertainment purposes only. Due to language and potentially offensive topics, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Wolf and Bull Podcast. I'm your host, the Wolf, and my sound is a fancy little animal sound. And I believe I also have my co-host, yes, the Bull, he is here. on the, the Bull show is here. with us as well. <laughs> yeah, we are the only podcast, as far as I know of, that is run by both a man-wolf hybrid and a man-bull hybrid. You know, I've been hybrid. thinking about changing yeah. mine to just Minotaur, you know, kind of just okay. fulfill the whole man-bull thing. But. You want a brand in that direction? We're going Minotaur? We're no, the that? bull works. It works. Okay, cool. Well, that yes. that was awkwardness aside. <laughs> uh, joining us today is a longtime family friend and friend of the show, uh, Coach Jordan Riding, the owner of Steel Body Fitness LLC and the founder of Mind Body Spirit Fitness Academy. Jordan holds a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology and a minor in Psychology. Additionally, he's also an ACE certified personal trainer and a certified nutrition coach that helps leaders take charge of their health through his online programs and academy. Welcome to the show, Coach Coach Jordan. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to be here with the wolf and the bull and, and the, uh, I'm just getting the flesh, but in the digital flesh, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're not, I'm not in the same room with you, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a little ways away. Yeah, yeah. we've got a little bit of distance between us. But no, it's so good to see you again. Um, now just a quick reminder to our listeners and our viewers, if you like what you hear, then make sure to follow us on Instagram and give us a subscribe on YouTube for all of the latest uh, updates from the Wolf and Bull. We enjoy introducing our listeners to niche ideas, you know, new individuals, different topics, things that people don't normally think about. So a uh, follow or a subscribe on YouTube would be absolutely Wonderfully appreciated. But Jordan, before we jump into the monologue, I would be remiss if I didn't congratulate you on recently becoming a father. Congratulations. Right. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. It, it so, uh, life changing. What's it like being a new dad? Life changing. Yeah. But it's it's amazing though. Uh it's hard to describe in like words, but it's one of those things where I and, can be woken up in the middle of the night and it does not bother me. Um and I can probably spend all day staring at my son and that would be a good day you know it's it's cool you know what the middle of the night thing that'll pass trust me (laughs) 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 no but you're you know what you're right everybody's always told i'm sure somebody's told you before you had your your son oh everything will change as soon as you have that child and you're like oh yeah right i'm i'm different than everybody else or whatever it is absolutely the truth, and you just don't know it till it happens. Yeah, totally. Um, now, any insight you can give fathers out there, future fathers? Uh, obviously, eventually, I'll I'll get on the wagon. Eventually, um, obviously, the, the the bull has all the advice, but I want to get some new advice from you. Just anything that you can possibly think of for in general, just for fathers in general. Um, just in general, yeah, yeah. Just I in mean, general. The biggest thing is 
I think just being there for my wife and son for whatever they need. Uh, so I'm taking it by myself to wake up before they wake up or, and I usually go to the gym and then I'll get home and I'll make breakfast, um, for my wife, bring up to her and have her eat that. And then I'll be able to take Lucas, um, for a little bit, carry him while she's eating and showering and stuff like that. So it's just like the small things. Um, I, I feel like matter a lot for her. Uh, especially since I think as the dad, sometimes we can almost feel powerless because it's like, I can't feed him. Um, he's being breastfed. Like he really like likes to be with his mom. A lot of times he does like to be with me too, but, um, it's one of those things where just like the small things really, I think matter. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. Now I'm sure there's somewhat of a balancing act when it comes to parenting, you know, while growing your business. Uh, could you give our listeners some insight into what brought Steel Body Fitness and the Mind, Body, and Spirit Fitness Academy into existence? Love to know the background about it. Yeah, I mean that's great. So in 2019, um, I was working in a gym for someone else, trying to grow their business, doing like I was training boot camps and I was doing all like the operations management for them. And I was putting in like crazy 90 hour work weeks, um, got married, realized that there's more things important in life than work <laughs> and that I have a crazy work ethic. Yeah. Um, and also too, I saw a lot of the gaps in the industry where, you know, in the group fitness world, there's everyone's like, go, go, go work, 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 show up six days a week because they want the gym to be full. Um, however, that's not how you get the best results. That's not even a healthy relationship to have with exercise. And while we did try and sit down with every member at that gym with nutrition, it, we were still limited. You were capped on what you could do. And it was really hard to fight against the narrative that's out there when you look at the diet industry in general. When everyone's like, restrict, 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 eat less. Even sometimes I'll get clients that go to doctors that just assume that they need to eat, your clients need to eat less, essentially, or their patients need to eat less. And then meanwhile, they're trying to go to a boot camp, kick their butt six days a week. It's really not a healthy place to be. And that's where I kind of decided to, I was also sleeping. Like I woke up at 3 a.m. to go to work, got home at 9 p.m. So that was my life, uh, like Monday oh through Saturday, right? Yikes. And so I was not doing that's much else besides work, exercise. Um, I got like 40,000 steps a day. It's crazy. Um, and then I would come home, eat, and like my wife said I would turn off. I would just pass out, right? And so I kind of, after a year of doing that um, in Philadelphia, I was like, man, um, I'm good at this. I know I could be making a bigger impact. And I know I could be doing this in a way that is not just healthier for me where I actually get to get enough sleep on a regular basis, but um, also in a spiritual and, and a relationship level with my wife, be able to connect with her more, right? And be that as well. And so that's what kind of brought about, like I was spent a while thinking we moved back to Pittsburgh from Philly. And I was thinking, how can I do this? Um, how can I give clients the accountability that they need, as well as voice that healthy relationship with nutrition exercise where it doesn't take over your life, but it actually complements it. Um, and then over time, that's when I decided to just create my LLC. And I didn't really know what it was going to be exactly at that point. But then over time, my coaching style developed. Um, and now, I mean, we've helped uh, many clients so in the last three years transformed just the way they think about exercise and food and um, also like going head to head with That's, that narrative of again, like the do more, eat less. Um, and people yeah. think it's like always think uh, that 
if you want to be fit that you have to like sacrifice your life to do that. And it's like, no, you can do it in a way that you actually enjoy. Um, so that's what I'm all so about. It's, it's like you're life. actually, it's, it's like you're actually promoting a balanced, you know, mental, physical, you know, emotional kind of thing that, and you're right. Most of the time you, the people talk about caloric intake, work your ass off, focus yeah. intently on one aspect of that balance wheel as it is, as it were. And it's a, it's good to hear that you have something going on that's looking at that more holistically. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I, yeah. And obviously we'll jump into the monologue in just a second, but I definitely do think that that's really beneficial. I, I know that, you know, during this research of, as I said, prior to, you know, recording, like I'm just going to go out and start hunting animals in the wilderness. Like uh, any food that's processed, I don't want a part of anymore after doing all this research. Now, granted, <laughs> that's very hyperbolic and I'm not being serious, but some of this stuff is pretty astonishing. And it does seem like within the health industry and the nutrition industry and in the medical industry, there seems to be like echoes of, I don't want to say fully debunked ideology when it comes to certain instances, but there seems to be a lot of ideology that just is very conflicting and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Um, now, our listeners and viewers know <laughs> the bull and I are not doctors. <laughs> so the expert here is Coach Jordan. Don't look at, don't look at us. Uh, we are merely providing opinion. Um, but, uh, it, it, it is interesting. And I think, you know, coming from the holistic position from your, uh, your business, I do think that it'll tie very nicely into the message of this episode because, there's just a lot of funky stuff that's gone on over the last 60, 70 years, uh, specifically in the United States when it comes to eating oh, yeah. and our relationship with health and all that jazz. Um, but yeah, let me go ahead and jump into the monologue. I've got a special little documentary-esque music for our listeners. According to statistics, over 70% of American adults are either overweight or obese. In 2018, an estimated 253,768,092 American adults 18 years or older were reported to have lived in the United States or Puerto Rico, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. That means that roughly 177 million people are currently overweight to some degree. That is astonishing. When I was in high school with Jordan at the time, ironically, it's a small world, the Obama administration established a task force on childhood obesity, stating that its goal was to solve the problem of childhood obesity within a generation. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem as if that strategy or goal came to fruition. America has seemingly gotten unhealthier, prouder, and more outspoken about it as time has gone on. The fat acceptance movement, aka Fat pride, fat empowerment, fat activists, body positivity has increasingly gotten more creative over the years. And honestly, if they're in need of a creative campaign manager, I'm open to assistance with revolutionary names such as TNQ, uh, Thick and Quick, RMP, Round and Proud, and specifically Niche, my personal favorite, You Get Away From Me Veggies movement. Obviously, I jest, purely because the aforementioned data above is not only morbid and obese, but truly disheartening, as it means many individuals' lives may be cut tragically short, which makes me personally uncomfortable. So why in the world is America so gosh darn large? Some blame technology, some blame transportation, and still others blame parenting, and additionally, on top of that, others lay blame with fast food. No one, at least in great amounts, seems to have turned their attention to the medical industry, which I find a little strange. So now, obviously, we clarified, we're not medical experts. 
And that's why we brought in someone who has a little bit more information, a little bit more knowledge than we do, uh, Coach Jordan Riding. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. We're going to be discussing the fat conspiracy when it comes to trans fats, and we're going to be discussing the big sugar conspiracy. Yeah, I like some of those names you came up with there. I really Thinking like the quick and quick. veggies movement. I, think, <laughs> I love that, I man. Really catchy. I, I think, I, yeah, it, it, it really is catchy. You know, your you know? favorite one there, though, is is every child that I ever grew up with. Ooh, get away from me, those veggies or whatever you say. The best one. 100% the best one. Way, way marketable. You, you know, it's super good. You know what's weird, though, is you, you brought up the subject of veggies like that. It just comes to mind. You know me. I always, you know, I'm old enough now to think everything's nostalgic in one way, shape, or form. But- I, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I was like most of the people I knew. I didn't like my vegetables at all. And my mom put them in front of me. You know, the, the green mm-hmm. beans were there. We had a, we, I grew up on a farm. So we had like fresh stuff right out back. And some stuff I liked, most of the stuff I decided not to like on purpose because it, it didn't taste like the, uh, the spaghetti or the, the burger or whatever else I wanted. But, you know, as you get older, I don't know if it's a, if it's a palate change that occurs or just a maturity thing, but, I, I don't even know if it's true that, that more adults like veggies than, than kids. I, I, from my perspective, it is, but that'd be a good question for you, Jordan. Do you see that amongst your clients that, that people are trying to stay away from that, that kind of stuff more even as adults? It's funny. So, I mean, a French fry is not a vegetable, right? <laughs> it's not, right? Yeah. And that's where I got to put that out there. It's funny. Um, when it comes to kids, I think a lot of times parents assume that their kids will be picky. And therefore, they almost like condition them to be picky. Um, and I, so far, in, in our little family, so like my niece is two. Um, and then, you know, Lucas is not old enough yet. And then we, we have um, a one and a half year old here right now. I'm staying with us as well. And they, they eat vegetables. Like they like them, no problem at all. Um, and it's, they, you know, eat lots of whole foods, I actually love meat, love, like, I think ribeye is my uh, niece's favorite food. <laughs> it's like ribeye, ribeye yeah. and pizza, wow. right? Um, of course, pizza, but it's <laughs> together, <laughs> I think whatever you're exposed to, you're probably going to eat, um, especially when you're younger and kids pick up a lot on parents, like, mm-hmm. like facial expressions and things like that and tonality. And if you don't like something or you didn't like something growing up, your kids can probably pick up on that and they're going to be like, oh, I don't like this. Mm. Um, and so that's something that we'll see when Lucas gets older and I'll put that to the test again. Um, but what I have seen is like I have a mix of clients. Majority of my clients are parents um, and you'll get the ones that they were they grew up eating unhealthy and or a lot of processed foods, not cooking at home. Um, and so they decide, Hey, you know, that's going to be this, my kids want Oreos. My kids want this. My kids want that. They just ask me for it. So I have to buy it for them. And then you get the other side of the parents who are, um, they're really trying hard and they buy all the healthy food items or the things that they think are healthy. Um, and a lot of times it's still processed food because there's a lot of products out now that are you know labeled as healthy. Right. And the, it's interesting because it's like, no matter what, um, you're trying to do always what's best for the kid, whether it be like what's best for their health or making them happy. Um, and it, I've seen it's just very different. It just depends on the culture of the family and what the kids are going to like and eat. Um, I think I'm getting off the question, but <laughs> that answer is no. somewhere in there. 
that's okay. <laughs> totally fine. Um, well, it kind of segues into another question I had, because uh, obviously you work with a lot of different individuals. All of them are different. All their circumstances are different. Do you notice any common misconceptions when it comes to that, you know, specific, you know, uh, allure that some individuals have to certain types of food or when it comes to obesity or in general rel- uh, in relation to weight? Do you notice any mix- misconceptions? Uh, I mean, like common? there's tons, right? And so there's like the bigger mm-hmm. ones, I could say like a, like a big overlap of certain populations kind of tend to stick with more is so if you're looking at uh, 50 years old and older, um, most of those clients that I've worked with are scared to eat more than two eggs in a day. Um, they're scared to eat steak more than once in a week. They're, you know, trying to limit the amount of meat and dairy that they can eat in any given time. Um, and that causes them usually to not eat the most satiating foods out there, high in protein, high in healthy fats, high in minerals and, and other micronutrients you need. And then they end up having a lot more like ice cream, cake, cookies, desserts, going out with, with friends on the weekends and all, like pretty much just having at it, like whatever's there, nachos, fries, and all of that. And we find that when we start to educate them a little bit on like, hey, I just want you to eat these foods now, uh, they start doing less of that stuff. And so they have less cravings that goes away. So that's one thing is like there's this misconception that uh, meat, dairy, fat, especially animal fat needs to be limited. Um, so that's a big one. The other one would be, and this is more the younger-ish generation, so like 40s, 30s, um, would be demonizing sugar a lot. And so not wanting to eat fruit even and like getting them to eat a banana, it, like, you know, they, like they don't, they feel like uncomfortable doing it. Um, and so same, and the same thing happens. They're not eating fruit. So what they end up eating is a lot of sugar um, because they, they have the, the, the ability to say no to fruit, but when they, yeah. they body still wants that. And when they see their kids eating Oreos, whatever it might be, they want to have Oreos and they don't have the, the ability to say no to themselves there. But when they get to mm. eat fruit, now it becomes really easy to turn down the cookies and stuff like that. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's like we find is when, when you start demonizing whole food groups, uh, especially whole food items, uh, it starts to drive a consumption of more processed foods. That's what I've seen. Yeah. So Jordan, do you, do you, um, adhere to the idea of moderation for some of these things that are not so good for you? Or do you promote with your clients more of a, here's, here's a basic standard we really want you to adhere to? Because at least in, in my life, I found that if I, if I just cut back on some of this, then I, (laughs) I'm in the wrong category. You know, luckily the camera's close enough to me where you can't, you know, see, see my BMI level here, but, but, uh, but there's, you know, there's a desire, emotional connections, especially as you get older with all kinds of things. And an occasional scoop of ice cream is, in my opinion, never going to kill anybody. Maybe I'm wrong, but do you promote moderation or do you promote, you know, complete end of ice cream? <laughs> yeah. So I had a donut today this morning before our podcast Ah, thank god yeah so (laughs) (laughs) you hop on my instagram stories i mean if it makes you feel better i bet you was a cake donut though not a glazed 
It was not a good yeah, idea. Well, if it makes you feel yeah. better, it's five o'clock somewhere and I have a beer. So yeah. <laughs> you guys can have your ice cream and your donuts. I'm having a beer right now. So <laughs> And so definitely uh, like I have what I want to have when I want to have it. Um and hmm. it's one of those things I tell my clients on a regular basis is you're an adult. There's no one telling you you can't have this, right? Like you can literally, if you want to have a Snickers bar for every meal of every day until you die, which might come sooner if you do that, um, you can do that, right? Like there's no one going to stop you. And it's very cheap. You can buy it at any grocery store, CVS, gas station. Like there's no shortage of these foods and they don't even expire. Like they just last forever, right? So if you really want to eat these foods, yeah. like, you can. No one's going to hold you back. And I think when you get that perspective, a lot of times it takes the the power or like the magnetism that a lot of these foods have out of them. Um, and I think as kids, a lot of times we don't have that. Um, we have the opposite, right? Our parents are telling us, no, like you can't have ice cream or no, you can't have the Snickers bar or no, you have to do your chores first, then you can do this. And then something happens when we become adults. Now we have the power to indulge in whatever we want, but we still have like this weird relationship with these food items because they've always been scarce in our minds when really they're not. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that ties specifically into, and you could correct me if, if I'm wrong, I do think that ties specifically into human nature, right? Because, I mean, we talk about the carbs and sugar. For thousands of years, we were doing a lot of you know, carnivorous activity when it came to you know specific eating habits and sugar recently. Now, obviously, I'm not I'm not in a uh, total antagonistic nature towards sugar. Like I have sugar, um, but sugar is very new technically when it comes to the Western world and our consumption of it. So I do think that that makes a lot of sense though. You know, the being told to do a certain thing and it kind of stimulates your mind in a certain way. And you create these ways of thinking that follow you out th- you throughout life, which over time has shown to harm a lot of these individuals, you know? Yeah. And so I think coming yeah. back to the doing moderation, <laughs> Moderation is a word that it's like, doesn't like, what does moderation mean to you, the bull, right? Versus the wolf. And you'll find two different answers there. Like moderation to me means something completely different than I know it means probably to you guys. And if you ask one of my clients, right? Same thing. You always get a different answer. of What is moderation? So if you just tell someone like, oh, moderate your, your alcohol consumption. They're like, okay, cool. I'll just do 10 a day. Instead, like, you know, who knows what that means? <laughs> Instead of 20. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what I was going to say. Moderation to me is, is take whatever your norm is for that particular problem. You know, and you had to, of course, use Snickers, my favorite candy bar, for your example. Damn. You should start the Snickers but, diet. But, Snickers but, diet. But, you know, <laughs> if, if you were using that as an example, uh, you know, have, if my normal intake of Snickers is one a week, which it's not, thank God, I don't really like candy that much but if it was you know cut it in half and have half uh, something along those lines but but i think you're right i think it's probably as individual as the people the clients you have each of them have a set of kind of a combination problem between physical and mental i don't mean it to be sounding like a problem problem but it's a challenge it's a self uh, partly a self-control challenge certainly and partly a a transitioning lifestyle challenge because we all, you know, I, I think today, and we'll probably get into this in a little bit once once the wolf gets talking about it a bit, but, you know, part of the ch- challenge today with the obesity in this country, it has to correlate with how much time we sit in front of, you know, either our phone or a gaming station or 
you know, the streaming service or whatnot, because it's sure easy to eat half a bag of chips instead of three when you're sitting for several hours in front of, you know, a television. So, yeah, I mean, when it comes to consumerism in general, right? Like, uh, see like the chips, there's, I don't forget which brand, I think maybe Lay's, but we'll see. Like it's one of those, their slogan for a while was you can't have just one. And so literally they're designed so you can't just have more than one. And like, they literally even just tell you that in the, like in the marketing, like <laughs> you're going to binge eat these. Right. Um, and that's how they sell more. <laughs> and same thing with like Netflix. Uh, if you took someone to see like the first Lord of the Rings movie, right. They'd be like, my God, that was a long movie. I barely made it through. Right. Unless you're like a total nerd like me. And then, but <laughs> Somehow we can watch Squid Games in like 24 hours, you know, and it's almost like 24 hours of TV watching and people do that. And it's a way, way easier to consume. Why? Because they've mastered the formula for human attention and it allows us to keep craving, oh, hey, what's going to happen next? Right. And now they got us sitting in front of the TV longer. They got us binge eating. They got us binge watching. And it's just this evolution of marketing. And like, again, like how do we make it easier to consume? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really good observation. I mean, I, and that's uh, back to your point originally, you know, how, how people think about their food and how they think about what they're ingesting obviously applies to what they're ingesting, you know, visually and what they're listening to and stuff like that as well. So I definitely think that's a, a really good observation. Um, now, unfortunately, in relation to obesity and the bull touched on this briefly, briefly, growing waistlines happen to be a worldwide trend at the moment. Uh, the WHO and the CDC both utilize BMI uh, to classify and determine levels of obesity among children and adults. I think underweight is below 18.5% and then extremely obese is above 35% when it comes to BMI. Um, And obviously for those who are in the know, uh, BMI is just the specific algorithm equation of weight in kilograms divided by height in, I believe, meters squared squared or height in (laughs) in, uh, feet if we're talking in English terms. Um, So BMI obviously provides health practitioners with a way to measure body fat based on height and weight. Now, I know that BMI is a relatively old way of measuring weight um, and health specifically, but since you actively work with your clients to avoid misleading information and techniques, do you happen to utilize BMI as a measurement, Jordan? Is that something that you that you look uh, into? So we don't use BMI when looking at goals for p- individuals. Mm-hmm. We look at the individual, right? And so BMI okay. was what I think originally created by the military um, as a way, and then started being applied to the whole population. And it's very much like this works for yeah. most people, right? And that's like kind of the Western mm-hmm. medicine kind of way of looking at everything is what works for most people. Won't work for everyone and won't be perfect, but what works for most? So that's what the BMI kind of, it's true for most people. So when we look at, you know, the society at a whole, when people are overweight on the BMI chart, they probably really are overweight. But when you look at the individual, you can see like Darren Sproles is like a retired football player, but he was really short and he was 200 pounds, five foot six or something like that. And so his BMI, like he was overweight. He's, he, so it's one of those things where yeah. he's like almost 6% body fat though. Um, so that's where the BMI chart it is useful if you're looking at like sociology, I guess, like society norms and measurements, but it's not useful on a one-to-one basis. 
Um, the only time I use it is if we're looking at maybe a extremely overweight client, an obese client, and we're trying to look at what would be a good protein intake for them. We're not going to give them protein intake based off of their obese weight, but we can give them protein intake based off of like a general range would, would be healthy for their height and weight um, if they were healthy, right? And that's what the BMI chart is an easy thing to reference, but it's nothing I ever talk about with my actual clients on a one-to-one basis. It's just kind of something that I, I'll reference as a nutrition coach every once in a while when programming and getting numbers for clients. So, so is, is your discussion with them more around, you know, you've got a particular body type and, you know, that people talk a lot about body shapes and body types. You mentioned Daryl, Darren Sproles, of course, and he had, you know, legs like tree trunks. So of course, you know, <laughs> that's why he's got 6% body fat and 200 pounds. Awesome. By the way, he used to play for San Diego. So I, I remember him well, uh, as well as I guess Philly was. So, but, but in yeah. any event, that's, that's where I would think. You know, you, you started off this conversation a, a little bit ago by talking about how you used to work for somebody else. And it sounded like you were dissatisfied with the, the methodology that they were looking at. To, they were more driving memberships than they were driving success for the members. And, you know, that's in almost any business. That's the story of why people start their own, because they have a desire to focus in more particularly around the individual clients. And so so is your philosophy everybody's individual. We're not going to, because you mentioned even the Western medicine thing. It's a formula to help the masses, but it's not designed specifically for an individual. Is that kind of your goal with, with your, your business? Yeah. It's very much looking at the individual. Um, and so me, myself, like the most clients I've ever worked with at one time is 30. Um, just because I talk to every single client that I work with like weekly um, on the phone for how much time we need to talk. And we were in constant text communication and I'm gathering information. I'm really trying to figure out, all right, what is going on? What has been going on? Why have we not been able to solve this problem yet? Why did you want to hire me, you know, in the first place? Um, so it's cause most of the people I work with have tried all the diets. They've tried Weight Watchers. They tried Atkins. They, you know, they did CrossFit. they, They've done a bunch of things and it just hasn't worked. And everything they've tried, though, is kind of like a a program or platform that's pre-made, right? Like, this is our formula for success and we're going to apply it to you. Um, so, I take the reverse approach and I say, well, what have you, like, we're just going to observe. What are you doing now? What is your current, you know, pattern for the results you're getting now and how can we intervene and change things? And how can we keep what's working well, actually, and the things that don't need to change? Um, and that's where I think a lot of stress comes for a lot of people. Um, when they, for example, you go into like a paleo diet, um, that's pretty restrictive. And you maybe are someone like me. I love dairy, right? So I eat tons of dairy. You can't eat that in paleo. Um, dairy is not necessarily unhealthy for you, especially if you're not allergic to dairy. So it's one of those things where why are we trying to cut out dairy? And for someone like me who eats a ton of dairy, um, that could be pretty stressful. Whereas I can do the paleo diet plus dairy and not have any stress at all. So why can't I just do that? Right. Right. Um, so it's yeah. a lot of times we make dieting and fitness more stressful than it needs to be. It could be a lot easier. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, and, and that's obviously, I, I don't think I've ever specifically stuck to a diet per se. <laughs> Um, I guess my diet would probably be going to the gym, uh, three to five times a week, but that's, 
doesn't work for everybody. And I, I do think that it, it would be beneficial long term for people to take that approach that you're describing because like I said, everyone's different. I mean, people can't have a one size fits all in every situation. Now, for some people, it might work. Um, and for some instances, BMI may be, might be the best approach from a medical perspective. Um, but I, I tend to, to align with the, the thought that maybe we should get better in that area. Um, cause frankly, I've been to doctors and they've told me my height and weight and they said, you're overweight or underweight. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because. Yeah, it doesn't it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but yeah, uh, just on the specific just for background for our listeners and our viewers, uh, specifically in relation to BMI, this is something that's very important. I think people should understand because because Jordan did touch on the fact that the military, you know, utilized it a lot. And it was it was popularized in a lot of ways by the military. It was also popularized by a specific individual called Ansel Keys. Um, in 1972, he published the Indices of Relative Weight in Obesity in the Journal of Chronic Diseases. Uh, Keyes supposedly had studied over 7,400 men in five different countries and in turn realized that an old formula from a previous scientist, I believe his last name was, uh, I'm going to butcher this last name, so forgive me, uh, Quillette, I believe was his last name, weight divided by height squared, he realized that that formula was the most reliable. Now, obviously, this episode is supposed, is going to be about trans fat. It's going to be about big sugar. Um, with that being said, I do think it is important to express the that the absolute damage obesity is having on society. Um, now, additionally, Ansel Keys is also largely responsible for the idea that a diet of excess saturated fats from red meat, cheese, butter, and eggs actually raises con- cholesterol, which con- congeals on the inside of the coronary arteries, causing them to harden and narrow. He popularized that view. Um, and uh, depending on who you ask, that's either correct or not correct or somewhere in between. Um now, when it comes to BMI specifically, a side note uh, from Dr. Nunley Bland, a pediatric endri- endro- endocrinologist and director of the Diabetes Center at Howard University Hospital, when it comes to children, by the time they're adolescent, the chances of them remaining obese is upward of 90 to 95%. So obesity is a terrible issue right now. Um, now, obviously, Jordan... You know, throughout my youth specifically, I, and you know this because we went to high school together, you know, I was relatively athletic and I'm, you were as well. And we were involved in multiple sports growing up. Let's talk about your experience, uh, with your clients specifically. Are there any recurring habits or thought processes that you've noticed that kind of stem from those childhood eating habits? Uh, yeah. I mean, so depending on what group of clients we're talking about. So, a lot of our clients either were active too growing up, but then got away from mm-hmm. like you go into college and there's a lot of different influences in college, right? And then they start drinking, start mm-hmm. eating whatever they can afford or it's just easier, right? And it's like the convenience food and the mentality of I'll worry about my health later because I'm young now and I'm doing other things right now that are more important, right? And then we just kind of push it off, create terrible eating habits. And then next thing you know, they're stuck. Um, so that's one kind of pattern I've kind of seen. Uh, also too, there are clients that I've worked with that they just have always eaten breakfast cereal or pop tarts. And we talked to them about them maybe eating like eggs and bacon instead or are having something with protein like cottage cheese for breakfast. Their first gut reaction knee jerk response will be like, but this is the way I've always eaten. Like you're going to take away my childhood almost um, by doing this. And (laughs) it's one of those things where I shouldn't laugh at that. (laughs) 
Yeah, and it's one of those things where I, I can almost like, like I'm Hispanic, right? So like my mom with tortillas, like we had tortillas all the time, right? So if you mm-hmm. tell a Hispanic, like, oh, we're not going to eat tortillas anymore, which paleo likes to tell people, um, that could be like, hey, you're taking away food that's cultural and it's part of my family heritage and like the way I grew up, right? Um, I've seen more and more that there's a lot of people that feel that way about Coca-Cola. There's a lot of people that feel that way about, mm-hmm. you know, Fruity Pebbles and um, Pop-Tarts and things like that. You know, I, yeah, yeah. if if you told them the story, I grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan, originally. That's where I came come from. And Cereal City, right? It's that's uh, Kellogg's basically own that town. And tell them the story of the original Kellogg's brothers and why they came up with the, uh, the, the cornflakes, uh, whatever they were called, <laughs> cornflakes. Originally, you know that story, yeah. huh? Yeah. I mean, like, like the yeah. one brother ran a sanitarium and was feeding them a special cornflakes to get them to stop doing a particular activity. That supposedly mm-hmm. led oh, to they all kinds of it. problems. We, we should talk. Yeah, they did. <laughs> totally. Which, totally. which is common. Which I mean, through like this research that I put together when, when it comes to the trans fat conspiracy, which we're jumping in a second, uh, and and you know, big sugar. It, it is very common that these things have just been just hammered, 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 hammered into society and people's thinking. Um, I mean, I grew up with cereal, uh, but as you guys know, I mean, I'm also Irish. And I grew up with drinking, so you can't take that away from me so either. You, you know, you put so cereal and pour beer on it. That's what you do. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's the healthiest way to do things. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 interesting that um, at least from my perspective, it is very interesting to to, to kind of hear your observations because I, I would think that they'd be relative, you know, to to my silly habits and stuff like that. But it seems like. A lot of these habits that people have when it comes to eating cereal or the way they treat food, it seems to be like a broad stroke, similar approach in a lot of ways for a lot of people, which is I find to be odd. But uh, but yeah, obviously, the obesity rate since 1975 has tripled. Um, there is nowhere in the world uh, that is nearly as out of shape as we are currently in the United States. Uh, that brings us to the sugar and trans fat conspiracy. Now, to be clear, after doing my research, I am not 100% on what the real truth is behind the trans fat and big sugar conspiracy. Obviously, there's a myriad of different sides. I would not suggest to be a part of any which side because I'm not sure it wasn't there. Um, but there's a lot of noise these days, especially from the activist aisle. Um, and that's when I tend to start to think that when there's a lot of noise, I tend to be skeptical, uh, especially when the noise is very hyperbolic. Now, before we jumped into the history of big sugar and trans fat, Jordan, in your opinion, what would you recommend the best way uh, our listeners can approach their daily food intake? What would you recommend that would be? Like how much food, the quantity? Um, so that Types, is so individualized, much, yeah. right? And there's yeah. of course calculators out there on the internet, which people I'm sure know about and use, mm-hmm. uh, and they really probably don't know how to use them properly. Um, and the end of the day, the best way to figure out how much food you should be eating is by tracking how much food you're eating now and seeing what result that's mm-hmm. giving you. So if currently you eat, I don't know, 3000 calories a day and you are actively gaining weight about a pound a week, then maybe 3,000 calories a day is too much for your current activity level. So you have some options. You can get more active or you can eat less, right? Um, and so that's the that's the only way to really get an individualized answer. And so it takes a little Seems bit of discipline. It takes like a couple of weeks to figure out, really. Where See, you Coach pop Jordan, I got, I got to tell you... I- I I think that the whole reason you get people to journal 
is because you know if they actually write down the truth, they're going to scare themselves so much that they're going to just say <laughs> yes to whatever you tell them to do. From <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, and that's yeah. Shockingly I mean, true and- too is that a lot of people will will eat these foods and will be like, ah, oh, it's just this one time, or it's just that, or you like kind of write it off, or you disconnect from mm-hmm. it and try to get like outsider, you know, what's actually going on, and then when you actually get more in tune with what's going on, you're like, oh, I didn't realize I ate that many cookies in a week or i thought it was just yeah. one or two drinks it ends up being like four or five or you know whatever it might be so well the bull always references back to the to to my historical it no longer but i used to have a very dependent uh, probably dependency <laughs> i know where you go with this <laughs> um at, at, there was a point in my life it was very low i was very young i was early 20s no longer i haven't had cheese whiz and like five or six years thank god yeah it's terrible thinking about it's disgusting but there's a point where i would actually have it quite a bit and the bull at one point hold it hold it hold it i have to stop you right there this did not happen but i'm attributing blame (laughs) with you uh i was sitting down and the bull walks in and he looked at what i was eating and he started to profusely vomit and i was like this needs to stop this is this is a (laughs) wake-up call for me and like as he finished he was like i this is an intervention and i said you've got my attention okay okay no no no. we gotta we gotta have a, a reality bite here Wolf, come on now. Yeah, you intervened. Did you, you, did you have a life. part of a chili fe- cheesesteak or a Philly cheesesteak last night? No, 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 no. No, 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 Come on, night. this is confessional Cheese, right I'm now. I'm talking about of the can. I'm talking about of the can. <laughs> cheesesteak. We were at it. Okay, so now I guess it's confessional with, with Coach uh, Jordan. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, were, we were at a food truck last night. They had Philly cheesesteak. Apparently, the Philly way, according to them, was with cheese whiz, whiz but not the craft <laughs> out of a can thing so and it really it was okay it, I, w- I wouldn't do it again it was not good yeah um but yeah so it, it's just ah, it's, it's, see i i look at this I understand. stuff i look at this addiction. stuff and i bet you this is just in jordan you can straighten me out on this if i'm wrong <laughs> but i bet that 50 percent of your time is helping these people to overcome their psychology around the food mm. you know yeah. exercise is vitally important of course but the mental game of, I mean, people literally love types of food, literally love it. And that's just crazy time. I understand it. I got a, I got a bag of <laughs> right here in He's front of me. Guy. It, it, you know, my favorite snack is different, you know, legumes. So anyway. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the mental aspect yeah. is huge. And that's where I think a lot of times the medical community as great as they are, um, give terrible advice because they don't realize what the response will be from their patients. Um, whereas I actually yeah. get to see what happens after they talk to their doctors and the re- the result is I'm pretty sure not what the doctor intended. Um, so, you know, when a doctor tells someone like, Hey, you know, you're, you're eating too much, um, what like calorie dense foods. So the doctor's like, you need to eat more fruits and vegetables. Stop eating meat because meat's a very calorie dense food they don't realize that like this client just needs to stop eating out they eat out too often and they need to eat at home and they this client getting them to try to eat fruits and vegetables it is not gonna be like a a battle you're going to win overnight and it's instead with confronted with making a salad or going down the street to get mcdonald's like they're gonna get mcdonald's nine times out of ten and we need to just 
understand like, hey, what foods do you like that are not fast food? What foods, like, what foods can you eat? What foods are you already eating that you would enjoy just making at home instead, right? And having that communication and uh, that conversation with a client gets them moving in the right direction to now eventually they're going to be more receptive to adding in vegetables to the mix too. Um, I think a lot of times doctors just like, they have one time they see a client or a patient um, every six months or every three months or every year even. And so they try to pack it all in one conversation like, hey, you need to lose weight, come to Jesus conversation, stop eating these foods, eat these foods instead, have a good day, right? And then they get yeah. mad when they see their patient again in a year and they've gained 30 pounds. And they're like, that, you know, right. like, what did I tell you? <laughs> that should have worked. <laughs> it works every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and that that's, yeah, that's unfortunate. And I've kind of, I felt that, like, look, I, I've got my criticisms of the medical industry. I, I know that, you know, my mom, you know, she's in the medical industry. She's been great, wonderful. I have a lot of other families in the medical industry. My criticisms, though, is it does, they there does seem to be some adherence to a certain way of thinking as there should be because it's a group of individuals and humans tend to you know coalesce around ideas that they hold if they're in a similar group so I, it's understandable um now on the topic of trans fat just you know for our viewers uh, i mentioned that hyperbolic nature of the activists well a lot of that hyperbolic nature uh when it comes to the trans fat conspiracy actually originates specifically with crisco and i know i'm kind of turning us in a certain direction yeah. but this is fascinating so bear with me and and jordan at any time feel free to interject um so crisco unsurprisingly enough has played a heavy part in the eventual creation of the lab food that we all know and likely have a lot of experience with today uh so like frozen foods or chips or anything that's processed uh, derived from crystallized cottonseed oil crisco was invented by proctor and grant gamble in the early 1900s uh, founded by a candle maker, uh, William Proctor, and a soap maker, James B Gamble, PNG experienced plenty of success from ivory, which was their hydrogenated, hydrogenated cottonseed oil soap. Man, that is a mouthful. Uh, the process of creating this soap proved useful in creating Crisco when it was introduced in 1911. Now, Crisco is marketed to be used instead of lard. Uh, so lard is for our listeners, a white fat product obtained by rendering the fatty tissue of a pig or other animals, which is high in vitamin D and actually is second highest, the second highest food source of vitamin D behind cod oil. Uh, and as a, and it was also marketed as a kosher substitute for butter and other forms of fat. Now, PNG at the time had published a cookbook called The Story of Crisco, which included 615 recipes which used Crisco and was also praised uh, when it came to Crisco's benefits. The book uh, labeled Crisco as an altogether new and better fat and unfortunately was also recommended as a healthy alternative to lard and butter while specifically ch promoting it for children. Um, now, it turns out that Crisco is a plastic-like fat which with a much higher melting temperature than the oils it's made from. That's from Per Real Foods, Foods Houston.com. And it contains trans fatty acids, which are also bad for you. Now, per theconversation.com, Crisco's marketers offered only evasion and euphemism when describing what Crisco actually was in order to avoid mentioning that it was made with cottonseed oil. See, at the time, Crisco per the marketers, was made for from 100% shortening, and it was marketed uh, as Crisco and Crisco and nothing else. That's literally what their slogan was, and, and that goes to what you know Jordan was saying earlier about uh, you know individuals kind of adhering to the marketing, like with Lay's. Now, 
Sometimes they gestured towards the plant kingdom. Crisco was strictly vegetable, purely vegetable, or absolutely all vegetable. And at their most specific advertisements, it was said that Crisco was made from vegetable oil, which at the time was a relatively new phrase that Crisco helped popularize. Uh, Crisco's marketing team wanted to avoid mentioning cottonseed oil purely because cottonseed oils already had a relatively negative public perception. Um, some companies used it to replace olive oil and it caused consumers to believe that it was an adulterant, which is basically secretly mixing substances with another substance. Um, cottonseed oil at the time was also associated with soap use in industrial dyes, roofing tar, and explosives. And apparently there are explosives going on behind me in the form of a giant storm. Yes. So if you hear any thunder, it's not, this is not special effects. There is a storm here uh, in the desert. Um, now, Crisco's marketing team at the time also decided to focus and dwell on the reliability of Procter & Gamble's products and the purity of modern factory food processing. So there's this whole marketing at the early 1900s, there was a whole marketing campaign to get Crisco in the eye of the consumer, and it really was at the time. Now, it's a long time ago, but there is relevance here. In 1906, when the Pure Food and Drug Act came into existence, which was a first of a series of significant consumer protection laws enacted by Congress in the 20th century, which led eventually to the creation of the FDA, Crisco convinced Americans that they didn't need to understand the ingredients, uh, ingredients in their processed food, many of which still use cottonseed oil, including mayo, salad dressing, pasta sauce, vegetable oil, chips, margarine, and baked goods. Apparently, 35% of all cottonseed oil still goes into baking and frying oils, which is quite interesting. Now, I think this plays a specific part because it ties into the founding of the American Heart Association. Unfortunately, this is where things get a little conspiratorial. So please, <laughs> you can, Let's I'll put go. on my tinfoil hat and you guys can, <laughs> yeah, it gets a little conspiratorial. Well, so. Think about the early 1900s, ahead, yeah. though. I mean, you had you had this kind of stuff going on with Procter and Gamble and Crisco, and and you had mm -hmm. you know Coca Cola with their <clears throat> secret ingredient at the time, yeah, cocaine. What are you right? What are you talking about? Exactly. What are you talking so, about? so one of the questions I always had about a lot of this stuff is how much did we really know at the time? You know, looking back at history, we see all these things nah. is extremely negative at the time. I would yeah. suspect. That they were definitely negative, but they weren't assumed to be as bad for people as they actually were. That's my guess, but I'm just trying to give crazy. them benefit yeah. of the doubt. Yeah. If you look at the marketing I mean, for like Coca Cola, they act literally had a commercial, mm -hmm. which is like a plaque, which is like start your kids young, had a picture of an infant drinking a Coke <laughs> bottle with a mom smiling. Ooh. Like oh, that was a commercial for Coca Cola. Bad look. <laughs> and so it's like nowadays we know that's just. It's pure corn syrup, or like pure sugar, and just other mm -hmm. things. Um, um, but like mm -hmm, benzate yeah. and all that, like just random preservatives um, and food dyes. But yeah, and then it also had drugs in it. So we we're looking at like this is what we're giving, <laughs> encouraging babies to drink, or encouraging moms to give their babies, um, which is crazy because we won't even give babies. Well, milk Billy anymore. stopped breathing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we have to give them yeah. uh, a baby formula, or you have to give them uh, breast milk, right? And don't even get it started on baby formula because, like, you look at the ingredients in baby formula and it's soybean oil and, and uh, hydrogenated corn syrup. Like, it's that is the biggest two ingredients in See, this, baby formula. what you're talking about, Jordan, goes Not to, good. like, the heart of kind of the what, way I view a lot of this stuff. I, you know, I don't, I don't believe that everybody had this, this dark nature about them. They were trying to, 
create this whole deal about all the stuff that was going to put us in our graves early and all that. Some guy, though, you know, the wolf has a giant tinfoil hat on right now. I get that, but uh, but I but I do believe, but I do believe the marketing drove this stuff so much that you know uh, the, our nature of our country and the way we develop these these companies and the income needed to to bring them into fruition. It's inevitable that this kind of stuff happens, and we evolve away 100%. from it. Into, yeah. I mean, you would, I would assume, tell people to go out and get natural foods and things like that, and things. Forget the moderation part of it for a minute. The 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 center lane of the good, healthy stuff first. But everybody's yeah. lives are so freaking busy that that would the whether it was the doctor you talked about earlier or the idea of of medicine, Western medicine, or the 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 place you used to work for, they create these formulas for as many people as they can get within that crowd. And it does everybody a disservice in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm probably going to disagree with you both. Well, there's, that's um, nothing and, new. And, and I don't, well, here's <laughs> the thing. I will tell you how I'll disagree with you. I definitely 100% don't think that everyone involved with this was malicious at all. I think that there were a lot of people that just trusted where this information was coming from. They trusted these groups and they said, okay, American Heart Association, why would we ever concern ourselves with criticizing them? They're the American Heart Association. Totally makes sense. But I do think there were some people that were aware of the the narrative, and I think there were some people that were smart enough, hence my reference of Ansel Keys earlier, that actually were aware of what they were doing. Now, just for quick reference, the AHA grew out of a set of small precursor groups in the early 1900s, uh, the main precursor being the Association for the Prevention and Relief of Heart Disease, which was formed in New York City in 1915. They wanted to study whether patients with heart disease could safely return to work. So admirable, definitely study that we need. Many similar organizations formed in Boston, uh, in Philadelphia, in Chicago in the 1920s, and this eventually led to the organization of the nationally-led group, which we all know and love today, the American Heart Association, and that was formed in 1924 by six cardiologists representing several of these preceding groups. They were very small until the 1940s. The AHA in the 1940s was selected for support by Procter & Gamble, the very people that were pushing Crisco, via their PR firm for a list of applicant charities. And guess when they gave them the money? During their wonderful reality TV show called Truth and Consequences, in which they awarded the American Heart Association $1.5 million from that radio show, which in turn allowed the AHA to become a nationally supported organization. Now, because of this, the American Heart Association touted for years that cottonseed oil was healthier than butter. They rec- they provided recommendations regarding limiting saturated fats and cholesterol, which emerged from a series of epidemiological studies in the 1950s and related American Heart Association dietary guidelines that emerged between 1957 and 1961. Now, Jordan, I want you to pay attention to these guidelines because they're very interesting, and some of them are reasonable. In 1957, the AHA reported some guidelines, and they were related specifically to a study that they conducted on saturated fats and cholesterol. They suggested, one, diet may play an important role in the pathogenesis of, et- oh, God, geez, this is a big word, uh, etherosclerosis. Etherosclerosis. I don't know the word. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a very important thing. Uh, cringe. Yeah, I think that was, yeah, that's scrocious. Um, uh, cringe. I'll put that for our viewers. I'll put that at yeah, the bottom of the video. Um, number two, fat content. 
sclerosis. Sclerosis. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Irrelevant. Words are hard. Uh, Number two, uh, fat content and total calories in the diet are probably important factors. Number three, the ratio between saturated and unsaturated fat may be the basic determinant. And number four, a wide variety of other factors besides fat, both dietary and non-dietary, may be important. That sounds relatively reasonable, right? Relative. To some degree. (laughs) Relatively. So now, as time went on, in 1961, the AHA provided some additional recommendations. And this is where things get a little interesting. So number one, they suggested to maintain the correct body weight, which was in reference to the BMI indicator from Ansel Keys. Uh, Number two, they suggested to engage in moderate exercise, exercise, walking for weight reduction. Sounds reasonable. Number three, They suggested to reduce intake of total fat, saturated fat, and cholesterol, and increase intake of polyunsaturated fat. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And number four, men with a strong family history of that word we can't pronounce should pay (laughs) particular attention to diet modification. And then finally, dietary changes should be carried out under medical supervision. Jordan, what what are your thoughts about the polyunsaturated recommendation? So... It's funny, the more we know about saturated fat, the less of an issue it is, uh, and the more interesting it gets, too, because, like, saturated fat, majority of Americans eat most saturated fat from processed foods. It's not from whole foods. It's not from cream. It's not from meat. It's not from dairy and eggs, right? It's from processed foods. Um, and so, we get this skewed view of saturated fat because it's always coming from, an, like, an artificial, unhealthy version, uh, which is associated with health issues. And instead of blaming processed food, we blame saturated fat. It's kind of what yeah. we've been seeing. Um, so saturated fat's been demonized, right? It comes down to we have like the monosaturated, we have polyunsaturated, we have saturated, and we have unsaturated fats, right? There's those four types of fats. And realistically, we need a good ratio of them all in our bodies from whole food sources, quality food sources. We don't want them to be oxygenated, Um and so that's why olive oil comes in dark glasses and it's not, you don't want it to be in direct sunlight, right? Um, yeah. And then if we get all four of these in a balanced amount in our diet from healthy food items, your body knows what to do um, to maintain your hormone health and just your general health. And, you know, it's, it's good to have these fats in our, in our bodies, all of them. Uh, problem is that just like we majority of saturated fat comes from processed foods and is not healthy for us, majority of polyunsaturated fats in our diet is highly refined vegetable oil or soybean oil or sunflower seed oil or Crisco, right? Cottonseed oil. And those have gone through a bleaching process, high heats, and over and over and over again. Uh, and they've, you know, and then the way we grow our crops also with pesticides and herbicides and stuff. It's, there's a deodorizing process. It's all these chemicals that's treated with before it gets put into a consumable oil. And then it's, at this point, it's been oxidated. Like it's completely oxidized. (laughs) It's just not, it's not in its natural form. Like if you want uh, polyunsaturated fat in its natural form, you would eat a walnut. You know, like a walnut has more polyunsaturated fat. Um, and that would be a good source of polyunsaturated fat. So I'm not anti-polyunsaturated fat, um, but just the majority of our polyunsaturated fats that we're getting in our diet are from fast food and they're not healthy for us yeah. um, because of what we do to them. And polyunsaturated fats, 
um, are the least stable on a molecular level. So their bonds are very weak. So I took biochemistry in college and essentially the bonds that are weak, you heat them up a little bit, you get those molecules moving and they break apart, right? And so that is like the oxidation process. And that is the reason why antioxidants are so popular, right? It's like antioxidants are, we know are healthy for us. So we know the opposite thing is not healthy for us by just by association, right? And if we look at monosaturated fat, that is the most resilient fat out there. Those bonds are strong. And what is monosaturated fat is butter, essentially. Butter is a great example of monosaturated fat. And so what we've been doing is demonizing the, the easiest fat to transport and to take care of without it getting oxidized, which is butter and monosaturated yeah. fat. Uh, and we've been mislabeling it as saturated fat. And then we've been pushing processed foods full of saturated fat, which have been, you know, like just totally destroyed. And we're pushing all these oils, which are polysaturated fats, which again are like almost like if you just had cold pressed walnut oil and you left that in the sun, it's going to be oxidized. Um, if we like what we do, the soybean oil is just ridiculous. So it's the amount of. Yeah oxidation that we're getting it's you know it's a lot of inflammation in our bodies just from these oils and we're getting a high dose of these oils um when we have just one or two of them when we should be getting all four in a healthy balanced way and we're, we're not and it's just it's interesting because like we start to doctors will demonize saturated fat because they know saturated fat is what creates mm -hmm. cholesterol in the body now um, we didn't know that before. I think they thought cholesterol created cholesterol. And they're like, nope, doesn't actually work that way. So we know saturated fat. <laughs> if you eat more saturated fat, you're going to get higher cholesterol, which good or bad depends yeah. on you. Um, and so now we're like, okay, demonizing saturated fat. But the reality is that we're mislabeling what saturated fat is and where it comes from. And also right. we're not even looking at On quality. accident. You know? <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Total accident, obviously. Silly yeah. accidents. It is. It really is. Um, and you know what's funny about all? And I was reading about all this, and I was just like, "Holy cow!" Like I, I prior to this episode, I went into our, I, I went into the pantry and I looked at all the stuff. Every single processed thing you could possibly think of when it comes to chips or any snacks all has like the freaking uh, sunflower seed oil. You have or chips some in your pantry? Shame oil. on you. Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> you know what? Some chips are very good. Okay. But they're terrible for you. Well, you, um, you know what though? Just yeah. as a, as a, to, to jump in for one second, it, uh, some of this stuff I think about and I, I go, okay, there's, there's kind of a, uh, a teeter totter going on, a balancing act going on between, our need to preserve types of food for distribution amongst a, a larger growing populace all the time and the need for better, more whole foods. And I, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't know the answer to these kind of things. And I'm not saying that, that all this crap that people eat is any kind of good for you, but at least part of the evolution of food processing had to do with our ability to get it in greater and greater distances away from the farm, right? Mm -hmm. So I, it's it's hard to know. Yeah, yeah. I guess if we go back to the old days, you go you go to the the local grocery mercantile every single day to pick up a fresh loaf of bread and something good for that meal that night, et cetera, et cetera. And we really don't. Very rarely do we do anything like that anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, you also have to keep in mind though. A lot of these companies they 
are trying to cut costs and things like olive oil, uh, you know, uh, you know <laughs> Coach Jordan mentioned, you know, pressing walnut oil. It's expensive. Uh, cold pressing anything is expensive. I mean, and obviously you look at coconut oil, you look at olive oil, those are actually crushed down so you can get the oil as opposed to chemically manipulated. Um, so it, it, I don't think there's like a maliciousness to it, but it definitely does not mean that there was not some level of uh, like eyebrow raising. They'll never find out because they're just going to eat it type scenarios. Like yeah. it, it's, I think there was. And and the unfortunate part about it is looking back historically, that means a whole slew of different things. Either the analysis from the medical perspective and the nutritionist perspective was either wholly underestimated or was outwardly ignored. Both are not good. Right. And I mean, per Healthline, uh, in the past century, the consumption of vegetable oils has increased at the expense of other fats like butter. They are often labeled as heart healthy and recommended as alternative to sources of saturated fats such as butter, lard, and tallow. The reason vegetable oils are considered heart healthy is that studies supposedly consistently link polyunsaturated fat to a reduced risk of heart problems compared with saturated fat. Despite their potential health benefits, some scientists are worried about how these oils are, uh, how much of these oils people are consuming. Now, Bull, you and I consistently always say a very special word and it's called fungible. All that is fungible. And what it tells me about this is when it comes to this particular thing, specifically when it comes to trans fat, specifically when it comes to pushing Crisco and things like vegetable oils, the data is fungible. So you can find any positive correlation. And it's it's just, it's, looking back does not look good, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a giant spin room out there in every marketing department for everybody that, uh, for any business, not just the, the food industry. But it's 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 all over the place, and we could talk about yeah. any type of industry and look at some of these different things that. that yeah, oh yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, but in, yeah. in terms of in terms of the uh, the distribution of food in that industry, all you have to do right now is look at look at the plague of diabetes to to mm-hmm. see the result of not, you know, doing anything major about these these miscommunications because that's what they really are, intentional or not. Yeah, you know it doesn't even matter at this point the what matters is to try to to course correct and how do you do that when you know families across in the united states we're talking about today because it's probably amongst the top two or three most obese places in the whole world and there's been a lot of studies about that and i think jordan you mentioned a minute ago the process nature of i mean they used to do studies about certain places in china where they didn't process the rice and they had lower cholesterol, lower fats, low, longer lives, all this kind of stuff. And yet they're poor, but they eat rice every day. And then other places now that have all the, the rice that's been processed, the white rice, right? And they're having the same problems we do. So, yeah. you know, there's there's no common answer to that. Probably no more common answer to this entire thing than there is for your individual clients. Everything, everybody's individual. They've got to work through these kind of things, but they've also got to find a way to make these things affordable for people because there's a lot of people with that, you know, they're, they're living on, you know, fixed incomes or something like that. And it's a whole lot easier for them to get all buy, go down to the local store and buy all the trashy stuff because it'll keep the, their kids and themselves loaded up with carbs and feel satiated. So, and that's something that I, worked with a ton with my clients and I've seen over and over again is this huge misconception that eating healthy is expensive because of, again, 
the processed food, like they, they want that out there. They want that idea of don't even try because you can't afford it. Right. And just eat these foods. Um, and what you, and it's funny is like, you'll look at like the paleo approved products, like these healthy processed foods, right. Or like the keto approved products or the ones that market themselves as vegan, right? Even though like Reese's and Oreos are also vegan. So like what, the, like vegan doesn't mean healthy <laughs> I uh, can't, at dude. all, right? And a lot of times it's, it's a lot of times vegan means unhealthy. Um, so it's monster energy, things. vegan. Yeah. And these are just marketing words that people throw out and that they throw out and they know that even if you're an educated consumer who realizes that like that means nothing, uh, most consumers will be drawn to it because they associate keto, paleo, vegan, with people who are healthy, right? Or with people who are at least trying to be healthy. And if they want to try to be healthy, they're going to buy these products. Problem is these products are super expensive and people are willing to pay them. Why? Because they think that is what health food is. And they're thinking like, okay, I'm going to try and buy my health. The problem is that those are unhealthy foods. Like they're better versions of unhealthy food. If that like slightly better versions um, from a quality standpoint, like, so if you look at like a Justin's peanut butter cup, real peanut butter, real chocolate, still not a health food, right? Um, and it's still a peanut butter cup. It doesn't matter. And it's one of those things where like, you're not going to switch from Reese's to Justin's peanut butter cups and like change your physique or change your health, right? It's just like, that's a small step. And now you're overpaying for a peanut butter cup. Maybe. It, I think they taste better, but still... It's one of those things where they do. Yeah. If you go to Aldi, Costco, Sam's Club and just buy ground beef and fruit, like ground beef and bananas, right? Like the cheapest food ever, eggs and milk, um, which just recently are more expensive, but they're still cheaper than most food items out there in the, in the stores. And if you just bought like whatever fruits in season, ground beef, eggs and milk, you're going to be eating healthy food and it's so much cheaper than buying like pop tarts or anything like that or cereal. Like hmm. I, I think breakfast cereal is expensive because I'll go through a box in one sitting, especially when I was a kid and that's like, <laughs> you know, five bucks. Dude, cinnamon like, toast crunch. <laughs> like, you know, um, whereas so a good. dozen of eggs is only like a dollar 50 and you know, I'm not gonna eat a dozen of eggs in a sitting. So it's actually cheaper to eat healthy food, believe it or not. It's just what is healthy, you know? That, that's yeah, a really good point, Jordan, because I, I always think that the, you know, the specialized stuff for these diets and everything else, I'm like, they're all more expensive. That's, yeah. the, but that's again, part of the marketing, right? And it's more expensive, not because it's necessarily better, but it's more exclusive. And that's, that's the, the marketing side of it. You're more exclusive. You can lose some weight or you can be, you know, you can look like the person on the package if you eat this. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, the unfortunate nature about all that, too, you know, and Jordan, you touched on this is a lot of these health foods, you know, they they include things like omega three and omega six oils, which in small amounts are fine. But the amount of oils that we are taking in as Americans, normally it should be one to one, one to one ratio. Now it's 20 to one, which is is just too much. And specifically in relation to omega sixes, 
and omega-3s to some degree, scientists hypothesize that too much of either contributes to chronic inflammation, so underlying cause of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, arthritis. Observational studies have also associated high intake of omega-6 to an increased rate of obesity, heart disease, arthritis, and inflammatory bowel disease, which sounds like a joy. Um, and obviously, there's not necessarily, necessarily a causal relationship. We're still very early on in the research here, but it, it is something interesting to be observed because all of these same oils were marketed as healthy when it comes to the intake of them from, you know, the AHA and PNG and various medical associations because everyone thought vegetable oils were fine. Um, now, studies investigating the effects of omega-6 fat consumption generally do not support the idea that these fat in fats increase inflammation. So there's a little bit of conflation and confusion here, but you know, for instance, eating a lot of linoleic acid, which is the most common omega-6 fat, doesn't appear to affect blood vessels of inflammatory markers. Scientists really aren't sure in that area. But a lot of linoleic acid is also in processed foods, along with vegetable oils. And processed foods can likely be directly tied to the increase of obesity in the country. So it seems a little pedantic. Uh, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but that's where, like, when I was researching this, it's like, this seems like a cyclical, vegetable oils are bad for you, but linoleic oil, which is in all the vegetable oils, is okay for you, and if you have it in condensed amounts, and you have, but don't have it in processed foods, then you'll be healthy, but all of it's tied in all the processed foods anyway, and you're still unhealthy. Yeah. Right? Does that make, it might, I mean, it, might, it comes it, down it, to, it's weird, very strange. Like, people always try to look at, is it the amount of food you eat, or is it the quality of food you eat? And it's like, well, why can't it be both? Right? Mm. And yep. the reality is, is it is both. And there's a moderation in each camp, right? Like there's an amount, like there's a time where you can eat more calories than you normally do. And it's not going to like totally like make you obese overnight. There's a time too, when you can enjoy something that's less quality food, you can go out and have like a burger um, at a fast food restaurant and it's not going to make your joints ache, you know, like it one burger, right? But if you're constantly yeah. overeating and you're constantly eating food that's high in these omega-6 oils and just, like I said, like these polyunsaturated fats, which are totally just, you know, just destroyed and adulterated, like you're going to be in pain, inflammation and overweight, right? So it's these things are, it's, it's a combination of the two and it's crazy. It's like, so look at trans fats. Um, there's two types of trans fats. There's artificial trans fat. And then there's like real trans fat, right? And so if you eat a lot of meat, so I think if you have to eat like a pound of meat to get one gram of trans fat, um, and that oh trans fat <laughs> is actually deemed healthy, believe it or not, because your body has these receptors for trans fat and it plugs in and it helps with hormone production and it helps with, especially with men, like performance in the bedroom and stuff like that. Uh, it's your sex health, right? It's part what of what do you mean? It, like, we, oh, we, oh, okay. you're creating your, your <laughs> testosterone, like free tea, all that stuff. Um, trans fat's a big part in that, but we only need this tiny little bit. And if you have a really meat heavy diet, whole food meat heavy diet, not hot dogs, um, you're going to get the right amount, which is like one to two grams, right? And you don't need a whole lot. The problem is that when we eat trans fat that are artificial, it blocks those receptors. And now we're not creating the hormones we need to create. 
the sex hormones we need to create. Um, and we're getting way more trans fat than we even need in the first place. And now trans fat's being seen as bad because we're getting trans fat that's artificial, not the one we actually need. And then we're pointing the finger at the foods that have trans fat in general, right? Not the artificial trans fat. Like no one, I don't think anyone like is out there saying like, oh, um, you know, I, I, everyone looks at the labels like, oh, I don't want trans fat in my food, right? And that makes sense. Like you don't want artificial trans fat added to food. But we know meat and eggs and stuff like that is for some reason seen as food that has trans fat in it and food that we want to stay away from and minimize, right? But it's not the same thing. Artificial trans fat, trans fat mm-hmm. from meat consumption is very different. Um, and same thing with cholesterol. You know, cholesterol is something we do need in our bodies. And it's a hormone and it really is important for our general health. Um, if we don't eat it or eat it fine, we're going to make it in our bodies regardless. Um, however, like trying this obsession with trying to get really, really low cholesterol in the Western society. At first we thought like, oh, people who have high cholesterol, more heart attacks, right? Now we've seen yep. that people with low cholesterol are having heart attacks. So it's like, wait, cholesterol is not even, mm-hmm. it's not even a thing when it comes to heart attacks. It's just it, like, we know we can manipulate it via fat consumption um, so what is the, what is the driver for heart attacks if it's not cholesterol, right? But there's a lot of doctors and a lot of people who are still what? caught up in this anti-fat, try to minimize meat, try to not get your cholesterol high, scared of having cholesterol high and don't want to eat eggs, don't want to eat stuff like that. And then they end up eating like pop tarts and stuff. So, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's very confusing. It reminds me of something else that happened over the last two years that we'll keep unnamed. Um, but just a whole bunch of information just conflated together. And now the cholesterol thing, as mentioned earlier, is from specifically Ansel Keys, which uh, thankfully we can tie back to him. But I don't, I'd love to get your opinion on the recent trend. Uh, so supposedly, according to the WHO, which is definitely, definitely in no way a communist run organization <laughs> in any way. Um, they're very trustworthy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there you yeah, go. <laughs> exactly. They've got some great hits like Baba O'Reilly. Uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, now, they're concerned, surprise, surprise, about the carcinogens in red and processed meats that supposedly may increase cancer risk. And surprise, surprise again, double surprise, the AHA has also started to advise that eating more plant protein instead of meat may improve heart health. A lot of plant-based meat can be healthy. There's truth to some to that to some degree. But in a lot of ways, they also include, surprise, vegetable oils, canola oil, sunflower oil, rich bran oil, peanuts. This all sounds very familiar to something that I think we talked about. Uh, yeah. It's called Crisco. Very familiar to all those things. And it's happening again. And I'd love to get your opinion on the plant-based thing just real quickly before we jump into sugar. And sugar's a little bit more condensed because it's really tied into the trans fat thing. Um, so we'll be able to, we'll be able to condense it a lot quicker. But I'd love your opinion on that. What are your thoughts on the, the, uh, the, the vegetable, the vegetable protein that's been popularized lately? Yeah. So it's interesting is that people don't know what protein is. The more I've found <laughs> as being a nutrition coach, I'm like, people really don't know what protein is a lot of times. A lot of people do, but still not to the depth at like what it actually is. Um, so, you know, protein is a driver between communication and cells in your body, like transportation of goods from one cell to another. 
um, DNA replication. There's a lot of things like your health relies on protein, right? And protein consumption, protein intake. And so much so that if you look at the RDA, which is like 30 grams for women, 40 grams for men of protein, if you go below that, you will end up in the hospital eventually. It won't take very long. You'll be malnourished and they'll have to intervene. Uh, so that's why the RDA exists. Like this is the absolute lowest limit that you're allowed to go with protein consumption before all hell breaks loose and you start to die, really. Um, so we know like the very limit there, right, of like what <laughs> like we need protein. Um, but for some reason, I think a lot of people are scared to eat too much protein. And research studies have shown that we've had people eat up to 500 grams of protein in a research study and nothing bad happened to these people. So we're like, okay, cool. So there's almost no upper limit. And the lower limit is like, you don't want to go below that. Um, so that's the first thing with protein is like, it's not just for people who want to build muscle. It's just for, it's for everyone. Everyone needs protein in their diet for health. Um, we are demonizing a lot of whole foods, which are protein, um, which is meat, eggs, dairy. And so only leaves us with the alternatives, which is like edamame, soybeans, tofu, uh, seitan, um, which is like gluten essentially. And so it just leaves us with two protein sources, right? It's gluten and it's soy. Um, if you look at gluten, gluten, for a lot of people who don't know, it is a protein found in wheat. And so wheat is heavily industrialized. We grow crap tons of it, right? Um, same thing with soybeans. Soybeans are heavily industrialized, not just in Japan, but also in America. We, we grow more I think soybeans than any other country. And so these things are also subsidized by the government and they help feed the masses, right? Like it, and it, we create processed foods from them. Um, can we eat them in their undulterated, like good forms? Um, so can you have a sourdough bread that has protein in it, which happens to be gluten? Yes. It's just not going to have a lot of protein. Um, and I'm not, nothing wrong with sourdough bread, right? Um, can you have a block of tofu that's been fermented and grown in a good way? Like, or like, you know, you can, right? If you go to Japan, it's very part of the yeah. custom. Do they only eat tofu though? No, they don't. <laughs> they eat a lot of seafood. Um, but it's one of those things where like, I have nothing against soy itself. I have nothing against gluten itself, but the push to just eat these foods exclusively in large amounts hmm. it's never been done in the history of humankind even like yeah. cultures like japan who really have always eaten at, like soybeans and stuff don't eat them as the cornerstone of their diet it's a supplement in their diet hmm. um and so it's it's one of those things where it's like okay so who benefits from this definitely processed food benefits from selling tons of soybean in like um agricultural you know um that whole, everyone who's producing these food, two food items benefits and they're easy to produce. Um, whereas everything else kind of like the competition is being demonized, right? So it's, it's interesting. This is my own conspiracy, I guess, is where I get into things. It's like, well, why, why is, you know, veganism being pushed so hard? And it's like, well, it makes people a lot of money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's the end of the day. Yeah. It makes people a lot of money. Yeah. Well, it's really unfortunate, too, because, you know, coming from like a medical perspective, and this is something that I, I think I've kind of 
wrestled with over the last few years. Because I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I was very pro, like, let's do a bunch of different things in relation to what the medical industry suggests. I still am to a lot of degree. But it just seems a little odd that as time goes on, the things that have come out to be supposedly in large quantities and large amounts or that are understudied when they come out to be not good for you there seems to be like this doubling down of well yeah so don't have vegetable oils just have beyond meat made completely of vegetable oils like it's 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 very interesting that there seems to be this push and i don't want to be conspiratorial because it makes me sound crazy it sounds crazy like ah there's this big group of people funded by the government to get a bunch of people who earlier in the 60s didn't know anything about food to eat more carbs and more sugar and forget about fats and forget about proteins that are good for you in order for them to get obese and then when it comes to the special time of the early 21st 20th century for a mysterious thing to come out that specifically targets only out of shape unhealthy people like it all ties together it's very strange and and i'm not saying this is the case it's just I look at this stuff and I'm like, okay, so we're going to listen to the WHO, which again, like I said, is not the CDC in any way. It's definitely not them. And the AHA, which was funded by Procter and Gamble, who made Crisco. Like, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's just everything the bad that the comes nose. along, though, Wolf, everything the bad comes along, uh, like what happened a couple of years ago, is targeting yeah. unhealthy people because they're quote unquote unhealthy to begin with, right? Going back to Jordan's yeah. point about individuals, you know, kind of or not individuals, but kind of the nature of our civilization is to find the lowest common denominator and satisfy that. And if that means yeah. tons of, of processed foods from wheat and from, from uh, soy, then you've covered the lowest common denominator, but we're beyond that now. So the, mm-hmm. the, the, how do you separate people from the habits that have engendered our ability to grow to this size of a civilization in the first place. You got to change their thinking. Somehow. I don't think you can. What was that? I, I, I don't think you can. I'm going to be cynical. I don't think you can. I, <laughs> well, you, I think you can't so within a generation. So, so yeah. when, when it, when it comes to a lot of this kind of stuff, yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's the demand for change, the, the yeah. lessening of healthy options, the lessening of options period in the demand for this, you know, new way of thinking and, you know, scientists are human beings just like everybody else. And they're, they're not all sitting around. There's, there's so many pieces to this puzzle that drive their decision-making and their funding for the most part, especially you think about there's, there's private and public funds that go into the discovery of almost anything you can talk about. And a lot of that stuff goes through university, which is primarily funded by governments and in and, and some private industry. So the decisions that are made have a economic element to them, no matter what we do. The hard part is to balance that with, you know, true North kind of thinking. Uh, maybe that's the wrong way of thinking about it, but that's, that's the way I believe. Well, I mean, Obviously, conspiracies abound, right? I mean, there's conspiracies in everything. There's conspiracies when it comes to the food. There's conspiracies when it comes to the medical industry. There's conspiracies in literally every way. Was Zane really kicked out of One Direction? We're not sure. I mean, like, who knows? Like, there are conspiracies all over the place. Like, it, so I don't want to jump on the bandwagon and say it's absolute because I don't think that it 100% went in a malicious direction. 
With that being said, as we've discussed, and this is the final segment of this this episode, is you know obviously saturated fat has been the bad guys since you know the 1960s, and in the 80s the American government came out and issued its first dietary guideline, which advised a cutback on saturated fats. Wonder where they got that from. Uh, seems like similar to the AHA's recommendation in the 60s. Um, people ended up replacing meat with rice, butter, and margarine and vegetable oils, and then eggs with egg alternatives, and then milk with low-fat milk and orange juice. And we uh, juice, and we all got fat. Okay, so we all know where this happened. Now, interestingly enough, there's two individuals that I want to talk about. One, which was already uh, mentioned, Ansel Keys. Another one was a British professor of nutrition who said sugar was a toxin back in 1972. His name was John Yudkin. Now, not saying that sugar is entirely bad for you, not saying that we can't have sugar, just merely suggesting that there's an interesting narrative behind all this that I think we can directly tie back to two people specifically. Now, in 1972, Yudkin published a book called Pure, White, and Deadly, which basically talked about how sugar is unhealthy for you. Um, the book did really well, and because of that, Yudkin's reputation was completely destroyed uh, because of it. The food industry and prominent nutritious, nutritionists all banded together to disavow the book, and unfortunately, Yudkin died in 1995, a largely forgotten individual. Now, there are plenty of others who have sounded the alarm when it comes to sugar and when it comes to trans fat, which obviously this is not new. With the dietary guidelines of the United States came an increased intake in all things high in carbs, like the vegan diet that we mentioned earlier. Literally, just carbs and any protein that comes from a vegetable protein are supposedly. So likely made of vegetable oils, by the way, which uh, the very thing that Crisco assisted in popularizing. Now, here are some concerning stats from GetPocket.com. In 1950, 12% of Americans were obese. In 1980, 15%, 35% by 2000, and now 39.6% by 2016. And I'm sure it's going to be much higher now because of uh, the recent... uh, the, well, relatively recent shutdown. Um, scientists are supposedly nonpartisan, so I'll align with that. They can't be bought supposedly. They're supposed to be neutral based on the principles of science. Now, the question I have is then how is it over 60 years that the food industry has been coerced by the medical and scientific industries to advise on nutritional guidelines that have turned out to be either severely misguided or flat out wrong mm-hmm. without anyone noticing only for an oddly specific agent of death, like I said a second ago, to arrive in 2020, which specifically targeted people who are overweight. For then the AHA and the WHO to come out and say that we should switch to vegetable-based protein, high in processed vegetable oils, while also forcibly inoculating everyone with something suggestible. Is that too on the nose? It seems a little too on the nose. Now, I have my tinfoil hat on, but you know, getting rid of healthy fats for trans fats, vegetable oils specifically, and increasing carb intake, which basically equates to sugar, and per the guidelines of the American government, the food industry literally puts all of those things into every processed option available. Now, I mentioned Ansel Keys earlier. Ironically enough, John Yudkin was struck by the fact that high consumption of sugar, not fat, was correlated to increased levels of heart disease. He noted specifically that humans have always been carnivorous and that carbs only became a part of the human diet around 10,000 years ago. Sugar has only been a part of that diet, the Western diet specifically, for a little over 300 years, and saturated fats, on the other hand, just as a side note, are abundantly present in breast milk, which seems a little more natural, in my opinion. Now, per GetPocket.com, Ansel Keys was aware of Yudkin's work and position, and if Yudkin published a paper, Ansel Keys would openly call it a mountain of nonsense and accuse him of issuing propaganda for the meat and dairy industries. The World Sugar Research Organization also considered Yudkin's book and claims about sugar, quote-unquote, science fiction. 
Ansel Keys accumulated plenty of powers in the 60s and secured places on the boards within the American healthcare industry, including the American Heart Association and the National Institutes of Health. In the 70s, Keys released a report that gathered data on diets, lifestyles, and health of over 12,000 individuals, specifically middle-aged men, in Italy, Greece, Yugoslavia, Finland, Netherlands, Japan, and the United States. Supposedly, this data showed a correlation between intake of saturated fats and the deaths from heart disease. Unfortunately, this all turned out to be false, since Keyes had apparently shown no objective bias basis for the countries he chose. He just seemingly picked the ones that he knew would fit his hypothesis, leaving out France and West Germany's countries that at that time had low rates of heart disease. Now, although Keyes has shown a correlation between heart disease and saturated fat, he had not excluded the possibility that heart disease was being caused by something else. Years later, Seven countries uh, associated with that specific research study uh, happened to be in a research study, again, led by an Italian researcher, Alessandro Minotti, who went back to the data and found that the food that correlated most closely with the deaths from heart disease was not saturated fat, but sugar. Obviously, this kind of makes it sound conspiratorial, but yeah. that all happened and it's all incredibly wild. Well, you know, if you if you have an answer designated in your head as a scientist or a group of people that are looking for a specific outcome, then you start to, to fit your, your empirical data to draw that conclusion. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's unfortunate, but kind of, kind of the real problem we see today because there are outside drivers that oftentimes we don't know until after the fact that are pushing these people in those directions. Yeah. 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 And although scientists, can't necessarily be bought science. I feel like can with the way that the research is done um, because you need funding for research and companies have budgets for, you know, for this, like for research, like, you know, if, for example, Cheerios, um, there's a study that they funded that allows <laughs> them to put the heart on their boxes and allows the little, the little bumblebee to say, you know, be happy, be healthy, because they mm -hmm. have a study that supposedly shows that Cheerios are heart healthy and lower cholesterol. Problem is that they funded that study. Like General Mills, that, that is a General Mills study. Like they gave the money for it. Um, and researchers just want to publish things a lot of times. Like scientists want to get their name out there. And the more things that you get that are published, the better for you. Yeah. Um, so it's not like you're pocketing money. But you're moving up the ladder and research is being bought by whatever. And then that's like the vegan's favorite thing to do is to say like, well, that study is funded by the dairy industry or that study is funded by like the meat industry or whatever it might be. Meanwhile, it's like you can look at some of these documentaries and you're like, well, who are funding these ones? Exactly. <laughs> like, Big soy. <laughs> Follow the you know? money, and, man. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where like all research is funded by someone. So, yeah. you know, we have to look at that and be like, all right, cool. Like, do we see this as an issue or not? And it, it's, you know, it, again, it's like take everything with a grain of salt, even though it's a research study. How does yeah. it fit into what we know to already be true? You know? Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, regulators are put into place to to have to provide some oversight for these these types of industries. You know, food is a great example of that. And, and what ends up happening, of course, is those regulators draw their conclusions on how to regulate those industries from the research that is funded by the exact companies that they're 
oversight is is attached to. So that it's regulatory capture. It's a big circle, and it happens in all industries all the time. And the interesting part of it, though, is there's the, the nice part from my standpoint, because I don't want to sound negative all the time on this, but there's a lot of individuals or groups that that take a counterpoint view of some of this stuff and come up with the same kind of things you're talking about, Jordan, and say, no, this is more complex in some ways, but it's also simpler in others because there's a lot of logic that goes through the middle of this. And if you peel away all these, these uh, um, marketing gimmicks, you know, a, a nice little bumblebee flying around and saying, this is heart healthy. Come pour, in matter of fact, pour uh, some some sugar milk on top of this thing or, or in no, your no. case, Wolf, some Guinness <laughs> beer on yeah, top of Guinness the cereal beer, and, and you'll be heart Jack healthy. Daniel, or Jameson whiskey, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, it's actually really good. The flavor profile is phenomenal. I think Boddington's would be a great. good beer with Johnny Nut Cheerios. Oh, there you ooh, go. That's it's, an interesting. Might have to try that. What a way to wake up. The box, so <laughs> there you go. You got the tie in. You ever had a pickleback campaign? You guys have ever had a pickleback, right? Yeah, I've seen of course I have. Yeah. I've seen people drink them. They're great. Yeah, I, I've had my first I'll one a few, one time, a few one years ago, and I was I was <laughs> yeah, surprised how good that is. And I figure eh, that's that's about as healthy a drink as I'm going to ever have, right there. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, Bull, I think you make a really good point. We've discussed this in more than one episode, but this is specifically reflected in a 2015 paper that was titled, Does Science Advance One Funeral at a Time? I know it's very hyperbolic, but it is an interesting paper, and I want to talk about it just briefly. A team of scholars at the National Bureau of Economic Research sought an empirical basis for a remark made by physicist Max Planck, quote unquote. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. Research had identified 12,000 quote-unquote elite scientists from various fields. Criteria included funding, publications, and the membership to elite groups. 450, 452 of these scientists had died before retirement. Now, research confirmed Planck's assumption Junior researchers who had worked closely with the elite scientists, authoring papers with them, published less. There was a marked increase in papers by newcomers to the field who were less likely to cite the work of the deceased eminence. The articles by these newcomers were substanti uh, substantive and in influential, attracting a high number of citations, and they moved the whole field along. As the bull and I have discussed in previous episodes, science is not absolute. Scientists, though, much like all humans, are a part of a quote-unquote thought collective, which is subject to the rules of human social life. Deference to the charismatic, hurting towards majority opinion, punishment for deviance, and intense discomfort with admitting, admitting erroring, which has been shown in the last two years. And I think it's what happened when it came to the trans fat conspiracy, if we can call it that, and the sugar conspiracy. Because at the end of the day, per your point, Bull, scientists are humans, just like marketing people, and unfortunately, believe it or not, even the Honey Nut Cheerios bee <laughs> is probably played by a human. So there's a whole level of uh, influence that I think really specifically pushes these problems. And I guess the question that I have, generalized question, it can be rhetorical or you can answer it. What in God's name do we do? Because I would love to solve the problem. I'd love to have a, a world in which, you know, uh, medical professionals and trainers, similar to Jordan, actually treat things as individual, circumstantial, specific events with other people because that's what they are and help them get healthier. But it seems that there's like a very heavy pushback against that type of 
existence, unfortunately. Well, I'll say that does exist in small pockets. So I, I know there are yeah. there are doctors that work with trainers and refer out to nutrition coaches and trainers that they know and trust and that they like their methods. Um, typically tends to be more like individualized practices versus like going to a health network, right? Health network, it's almost like a machine churns people out and you have like a set, like how many appointments can you get in an hour, you know? Um, And so it's just like, what version of the health industry are we talking about? Right. Um, But yeah, it's one of those things where like, I do see it happening well with medical professionals actually saying like, Hey, you know, here's where you at, where you're at. Nutrition is a huge part of this. Exercise is a huge part of this. If you need help with that, I have an expert that will help you with that um, and call this person, but it's not no, I, happening I, probably nearly as enough. Yeah. I, I think it would be a, a real good step to, I, I mean, you, you, your coach Jordan in your, you probably have, I don't know what you use for your title for your company or because it's more than just trainer, right? There's a lot involved. And the, when, when, Common man number one says, okay, I want to go get a trainer at a gym. That's a whole different thing than what you're doing. Whole different Correct. thing. But people <laughs> are using the same terminology. And I, I, I think that if people like yourself that are trying to, to, um, approach things as a, an individual designed program to solve challenges that your clients specifically have, there's a lot that goes into that. You need to be studied. You need to be, in, in some way, uh, certified either, uh, uh, academically or through, through time spent in an industry or somehow or another. And there's this, there's this view, I think, at least, and it's maybe it's minimizing more, but there's this view of the medical industry that says, well, they went to school for X amount of time. They have this certain amount of learnedness about, you know, how the mechanics of biology and biochemistry and everything else works. So we're going to listen to them, but it, to your point a second ago, if they're part of a health network, their whole goal, they might know a lot about a lot, but their whole goal is how many people do I see a day? Because I've got to book it for this, this medical network. Otherwise I'm not going to make the money. I thought I was supposed to make to pay back the, the school loans that I have. So yeah. there's got to be a better connection for matter of fact, it's almost like you have to have what you do create another segment and it's all like a, a continuum it's a health and quote unquote wellness industry. Both are involved mm-hmm. and I'm not sure where it goes from there, but that's where I think it should. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's where if you get more doctors to actually do that themselves, that's what it comes down to is like doctors being able to decide to probably make their own practices more often. And for like, and for them to do things the way that they think they should be done. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I definitely think that there's a lot that could be worked on. And obviously, you know, Jordan, I think you're going in the right direction. I think that, you know, to, to Bull's point, you know, you obviously need people who are educated and people who understand, but they also need people who care. And it seems like you do about your clients. And I think that that's important. I think that more individuals need to stop the churn and burn and actually care about the people that they service as actually people. And, um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully this thing gets figured out. Uh, it's going to take a long time. And to Bull's point, you know, 
uh, I frankly, in contradiction to Bull's point, I don't necessarily know if it ever will be because it's very complicated. But I don't think that his point was incorrect because I'm trying to be neutral like our <laughs> former episode. Um, but I, I mean, anything else, guys? I, I think that kind of wraps it up. I think that we've talked about a lot today. Yeah. Um, it, it's definitely it's hard to not think about it insidiously, unfortunately. Yeah, we've unveiled the, the boogeyman, I guess. You can like when it comes to this, like <laughs> just the obesity <laughs> epidemic or pandemic or whatever we're having, right? Uh, endemic. Yeah. Um, um, you know, we've unveiled that a little bit and i mean it comes down to anyone who's listening it's like hey the thing that you can do is look out for your own health and your family's health that's Mm. that's in your control right um all this other stuff like cameron said like it's impossible it's not we're not able to to be able to change these people at least not in our generation as the bull pointed out um it's like one of those things where it's you know, what we can work on in the future um, from an individual standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. No, if people take your position more, we can, it's just going to take time. And it's, it's, it's kind of a bummer because I grew up with all this stuff, uh, you know, the processed food, the cereal, all that jazz. I mean, like I said, cinnamon toast crunch, Ooh, that stuff yeah. is something else, man. Um, but yeah, for our listeners, you know, we really hope that this episode has given you some insight into, uh, you know, the, the health industry specifically, maybe within your own life about what you're currently eating and hopefully encourages you encourages you to you know seek out some assistance and if you're not feeling up to it if you're not feeling well seek out some assistance assistance from individuals like jordan you know who have a valid interest and a viable interest in your well-being and in the you know adjustment of the way you think about food because that's something that we all i would assume everyone listening and everyone including myself struggle with is our relationship with food and how we treat ourselves because at the end of the day that's what's important um now jordan you know before we wrap up uh, you know Again, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'd love to connect you, with you again for future episodes, uh, 100%, especially in the health, health area. Uh, but before we wrap up, you know, how can our listeners support you? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. And yeah, I mean, we could, for future episodes, we could even talk about when it comes down to, again, body image and what, like, we haven't even touched that, that really that much. Um, and that's <laughs> craziness. <laughs> it gets really in the weeds yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, if you want to get in touch with me, first off, if you're just interested in, in you know, now that you know who the boogeyman is and able to protect yourself and your family and you just want good information, uh, you can follow me at Coach Jordan Writing at, on Instagram. Uh, and then you can also come find me, become my friend on Facebook, <laughs> uh, Jordan Writing. And there's a Facebook free community run that I run. Um, where again, we, we have many challenges, giveaways, and we just things on a weekly basis, just to incentivize you completely for free to live a healthy life and to give you that community. Um, even if it's virtually, and that is the fat loss in half the time Facebook group. And we call it in like in parentheses, the mind, body, spirit community. So if you go and type in to Facebook and groups, fat loss in half the time, you'll find the group. Awesome. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. Oh, 100%. Yeah, all that be included. Um, also, you know, we're gonna we're really excited. I think it's gonna be a great episode for our listeners. Um, but yeah, Jordan, thanks again. Viewers, listeners, thanks again. If you happen to like what you saw, if you happen to like what you heard, go ahead and give us a follow on Instagram. You can also find us on YouTube. Uh, definitely want to grow the family, want to grow our community, and introduce you to people like Jordan, introduce you to new people who can give you some insights and how to maybe make your life a little bit better. But yeah, thanks again for tuning in, and we can't wait to connect with you guys again soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Wolf and Bull podcast with your host, the Wolf and Bull. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the show, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all of the latest from the Wolf and Bull, you can tune in via our weekly episodes available on nearly every major listening platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Wolf and Bull. You can follow us on YouTube at the Wolf and Bull podcast and at our website, thewolfandbull.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.